I think there's research that shows that animals and caring for animals has a gentling effect on people, that, that people who are incredible psychopaths often have a history of exceptional cruelty to animals. We know that having animals around is, has a very calming effect on people with post-traumatic stress disorder or people with Alzheimer's disease or, or people who are unsocialized or prisoners and things like that. So there's a lot, lot there with other animals. And, uh, and a lot of it is real. It's not just us broadcasting our fantasies onto them or projecting uh, our own ideals. There, there's a lot there. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Do you know that song, It's the End of the World as We Know It? I won't try to sing it and kill you with my horrible voice. Instead, I'll jump to today's topic, the end of the oceans and life as we know it. Today, we have Carl Safina on the program. Carl is the author of various books and writings about how the ocean is changing and the lives of animals and the animal-human relationship in the natural world. His books include Song for the Blue Ocean, The Eye of the Albatross, The View from the Lazy Point, A Natural Year in an Unnatural World, and Beyond Words, What Animals Can Think and Feel. He's the founding president of the Safina Center, an endowed research professor at the Stony Brook University, and he's very active in the sciences, especially supporting wildlife conservation and the oceans. He's hosted a 10-part PBS series titled Saving the Ocean with Carl Safina. And he's an incredibly passionate animal lover, scientist, and communicator of sciences, especially understanding what animals are actually thinking, feeling, and how they interact with our world. In today's episode, we'll discuss why we're much less different from animals than we think, how overfishing could lead to a complete ocean die-off, why Carl's so worried about climate change and unforeseen consequences, what animals can teach us about ourselves, the reason consciousness isn't only limited to people. Why there's so many animals with superhuman abilities, and what an alien or artificial intelligence might actually look and act like. All this and more in today's episode, which I know that you guys are going to enjoy. We're going out there into the great wide world of nature and looking at how we can build a better world and learn from, learn from nature's evolutionary processes to also build happier and healthier people. I know you guys will enjoy this one and would really appreciate if you guys would support us. You know, we do this right now to try to make a difference in the world, but to do that, we have to be sustainable. This can't be something where we go for six months, a year. We want to continue to interview and bring on the world leaders in the fields of everything exponential and everything affecting our futures. If you guys find this podcast valuable, if this is something that you would not want to have to go without, if this is one of your favorite podcasts, consider supporting us. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can support us on there any amount that you're comfortable with. Anything that you're willing to give and support us with on a monthly basis, that helps us move closer and closer towards that edge of sustainability. Right now, we're not even close, guys. We have a long way to go. We'll set a we'll set a deadline for the time period we have to get to that by to be able to keep doing this so that it doesn't just become a standalone series. And really need your help in getting there. If it's worth more than a cup of coffee a week to you, if it's worth heck, Netflix, how much are you spending on Netflix, Amazon Prime? You're essentially watching a bunch of shows that you probably get a lot out of, but really don't get a lot out of, if you know what I mean. It, it, it's kind of like chocolate milk for your brain. It's not really that beneficial. We're trying to we're trying to be a little bit more nutrient dense here so that you can enjoy this benefit and that others can also benefit as well. If you like that, if you want to support what we're doing, disruptors.fm slash Patreon. And if right now it's not something that's feasible for you, consider leaving a review, disruptors.fm slash iTunes. Reviews are incredibly important for us. iTunes is the big gorilla when it comes to podcasting. And the more reviews and the more exposure we're able to get, the more people we can reach, the more lives we can hopefully change, and ideally the more support we can garner so that we can keep this sustainable. Disruptors.fm slash iTunes. But you know what? It's time to get crazy. It's time to go wild because you know what? We're talking animals, outdoors, and much, much more. I give you the one, the only, Carl Safina. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, 
Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off, delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm slash thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for, for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well. Disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatics Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatics Proprietary Blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm slash FS, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash FS. Use offer code disruptors to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Carl, you're a really interesting guy, and we haven't talked as much about the topics that, that you cover, but I think it's something we need to get out there. Yeah. So can you, can you walk me a little through your background and how you got into understanding animals and the, the complex systems that happen in the, in the animal kingdom? Uh, sure. I, I think it's important to not start with my education or my work, but just for some reason, I uh, have always really loved animals since the time I was a very small boy. Even though we lived in a tenement flat in Brooklyn, I, uh, where there were, you know, there was no wildlife, but anything about animals totally fascinated me. And I kind of got into it early, pretty hard. Uh, when I was seven years old, I had my own flock of homing pigeons. And uh, I always had as many kinds of different pets as I could possibly somehow get my hands on. And um, these were not dog and cat pets. These were things like uh, snakes and toads and um, chipmunks and things like that. Now, my parents used to take me to the Bronx Zoo just outside of New York City. Well, actually, it's, it's within New York City, outside of Manhattan in the Bronx, and to the aquarium at Coney Island and to the Museum of Natural History in Manhattan. And my father would take me fishing sometimes. So that's where my, uh, you know, they made sort of the interface between me in this very tiny little urban world and uh, a wider world of animals. But I don't know why. Uh, it's just, I guess you would call it a talent, something I picked up very, very easily and very quickly at a very early age that I just really loved anything to do with animals and I wanted to have a lot to do with them. So that those early experiences led to me, once we moved to the suburbs, we had a little bit more room, I would venture out on my bicycle and I would you know, I'd find the last remaining patches of woods that are mostly now uh, office parks and uh, housing tracts. But I'd roam around in there and I would make little terrariums, little, little things I found. Uh, and then, you know, all of this interest and getting involved, finally, you know, um, hooking up with some people that I found out about who did falconry or who did bird banding. All of this made me want to somehow turn it into a career, although I had no idea at all how one does anything like that. And I did go then to college and I got a bachelor's degree in environmental science and a master's and a PhD in ecology. I, I studied seabirds for about 10 years. And then uh, because I noticed that all the fish were declining 
pretty one way. You know, it was going down and down every year. I got very involved in fisheries policy reform, and I did that for something like eight or ten years. And and uh, during that time, I was writing papers for science journals about seabird ecology and papers for policy journals about fisheries reform. And then at the end of the fisheries reform period, what ended that for me was I wrote a book that was mostly about how the ocean was changing. It was based on the, you know, the combination of my experience with the seabirds and the fisheries reform, everything I had learned about what was going on in the ocean. And uh, that book caused my career to pivot so that I became basically a person who writes and speaks about these issues more than, uh, well, I, I don't really do the kind of field ecology where I'm the one who goes out with the clipboard and takes the data and does the the, the policy um, and the and the um, peer-reviewed journal articles. I now do, I now go out with people like that who are the best in their field in the world and they are my guides and I am my reader's guide and so I mainly write about these issues. Our, our, our relationship with the rest of the living world is my topic. Does it frustrate you that you lost that? Basically, basically, I'm going to guess what happened is you became so important to the movement that you decided to focus on that rather than the hands-on work that you were doing before? Yeah, well, I have a huge cheat, which is that I go out with the best people in the world who, who are doing the hands-on work. And if I was still doing it myself... If I was lucky, I would have one very established field site and I would go there when I was in the field. But what I have now is I call people who I think are, are the best in the world, whose work most thrills me. I, they never turn me down. I don't know really why I'm so lucky, but I, so rather than being in the field with, let's say, the, the, the turns that I was studying, I go on a trip to be with sperm whales in the Caribbean. And then the next trip is to be with macaws in the Amazon in Peru. And then the trip after that is with chimpanzees in Uganda. I mean, that's literally what it's been in the last 12 months for me. Then I find out about a guy in New Hampshire who raises orphan black bears and rewilds them. And I call him and I, the next week I'm I'm up there with, with baby black bears. And then uh, let's see what else happened within the last 12 months or so. Oh, and then I went on a trip in, um, in the Bahamas with a woman who's been studying spotted dolphins there for 30 years, and she knows all of them individually. So I, I don't lack for field time, that's for sure. And I live in a pretty nice place where I get outside and we go birding and we take the dogs to the beach and we go clamming and catch some fish and things like that. So I've, I've managed to really cheat that system. What do you think got you into the less cuddly animals? A lot of, a lot of kids... I have a personal theory that if people don't like animals, they're probably not a good person because there's just that innocence that almost all animals have, at least the ones that most people have on a day-to-day -day experience with. But what got you into the 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 out the outskirts so so to speak of the human animal animal interaction you're dealing with a lot of times some of the ugly stuff the snakes the, the some of the things you talked about earlier yeah that's um that's something i never thought of in that way and nobody has ever asked me that question but my my thing is that every every living thing is beautiful and you know there are exceptions to every rule so i have to admit naked mole rats they are just flat out ugly. But I think living things are beautiful. So to me, let's just say something like a snake. To me, a snake is an absolutely fascinating thing. The, the way it moves, the, the way that it is smelling with its tongue, the, the different things that it can do. How can it live a life where it has no limbs at all and yet is a predator that catches things? How can it disappear in half a second when I have my eye on it and it just strikes the edge of a leaf and it's gone? So, I mean, to me, these things are incredibly fascinating. And actually, I always found uh, until the last few years where I've really become a, a, a totally sold dog person, I always found the domesticated animals, cats and dogs, to be... Uh, to be boring because um, they they were very very people oriented. They they were semi created by people's idea of what they wanted an animal to be like and look like. They're very toned down and tamed down, and um, I I didn't I didn't find them interesting. Whereas uh, 
a hawk that you're trying to make a working partner of yours is very interesting. Now, like I said, in the last few years, I, I have actually had my heart totally melted by dogs. So, um, and I had, well, I did have cats when I was a kid in Brooklyn, when I, when I had pigeons, I also would have occasional stray alley cats that we would find. A lot of them were very wild and very afraid of people, but occasionally there would be one that wasn't so afraid and wasn't so wild and we would provide a little shelter and feed it. And, and that would be my cat. But we, uh, we didn't have them in our apartment, mainly because the apartment was too small. My mother was a little afraid of all these things. But um, anyway, yeah. So that's that's a short history. I like to say dogs will love you forever, and cats will eat you when you're dead. And that, <laughs> that, that's kind of that's kind of the summary. So you hey, got in- cats, cats may not be interested enough in you to eat your corpse. I don't know. But yeah, but dogs, I, my feeling now about dogs is that they are actually the people we wish we could be. They have all of the good traits that we aspire to, and they, they don't have really any of the bad stuff. So I've done a 180 on dogs. Children before society changes them. Yes. I, that's kind of how I would analogize it as well. It's yes. pure it's pure innocence, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So you get into this work and you said something about the ocean pulled you there. What was that? Oh, well, that's, um, that's a simple and kind of, uh, in a way, it's a kind of bittersweet story or sad story is that I, I was living on Long Island and every place I went where it was woodlands with woodland animals, woodland trees, woodland birds, woods. Uh, they would knock down all the woods. So I just got pushed farther and farther toward the shore. We, we lived about 10 or 12 miles from Long Island Sound. And now talking about when I was in my early to mid-teens and using my bicycle. So eventually, I, I just wound up on the shore. It was my last resort. And um, and I always did like fishing a lot. So I just, I just uh, if I wanted to be outside doing anything wild and unstructured, uh, pretty much had to go to the shore to do it after, um, after you know, various patches of woods were were destroyed. There were a few few bits of woods that were owned by people on big estates on the North Shore of Long Island. I would go in there and go camping. So oddly enough, I mean, if I took you driving around these places I'm talking about, you would kind of say, well, there's nothing here. It's a totally built up environment. But when you're 15 and you're on a bicycle and you want to go into somebody's woods and set up a tarp and sleep there overnight and hear owls hooting, you know, it becomes, you, you can actually have a pretty good experience with that. And then go down to the shore an hour before it starts getting light and be be casting into Long Island Sound in the darkness. Those are, you know, you can you can feel the mystery there. Kids don't have that anymore. How do we bring that back? Well, I think um, we we have to let kids play and explore, which everybody is, you know, very, very afraid to do, basically. I noticed I was at, we have, we have a beach house on the east end of Long Island and I was sitting with my neighbors across the street who are in their late eighties and their grandson was over with a friend that he was about eight years old, I guess at the time, eight or nine years old or something. And they were playing in the sand with these trucks and they were making these little villages with uh, little twigs and sticks and things like that. And then they would go in the water and take a swim because they're too hot. And then they would come out and uh, run down the beach and do something else with their, uh, boogie boards and then they would come back and play with their trucks some more and I couldn't take my eyes off of them and I was I was wondering why is it that I'm staring at these two little kids and the reason was I realized I had not seen children playing in years how do we how do we handle that I know society's starting to come to grips with some of the implications of technology there's there's good and there's bad but how do we how do we yeah. create a better sense of balance do well, you have any ideas before we get to the how let me just say one thing and that is that I I got an award a long time ago and it was a conservation award so there I am at uh, this meeting with the other people who had won the same award and after all the formalities were just sitting around around dinner and a few people pulled up chairs to the same table until we had about a dozen people sitting around the table just talking and I turned to one person I said how did you get interested in nature and he said well I lived right next to this national forest and when I was a kid I would just roam around in the national forest and somebody somebody else said oh well I lived next to um, this place that was kind of like a kind of like a park and if you walked walk through the park you get to the shore and I would roam around in there a lot and just fool around on my own and then they asked me and I said well to tell you the truth the apartment building behind our house was knocked down and it was a vacant lot. And when I was, you know, when I was like uh, three years old, five years old, seven years old, I just wander around in the vacant lot and find caterpillars and things like that. So the one thing we all had in common, these people who all won awards in conservation was that when we were kids, we had a place we could go to where there was no structure. 
There was no activity. There were no parents. There was not the thing you're supposed to be doing. We just wandered around. That was the thing we all had in common. And and people nowadays, I mean, forget screens and pads and everything where where the kids themselves are hard to pry away, but you can't get the kids away from the parents either because parents are too scared that bad things will happen to their kids. And um, I think I think what's needed is I think a lot of really unstructured playtime. And like that that day on the beach, I was watching those kids play. It wasn't like no one had their eye on them. If if one of them happened to start drowning, which wasn't going to happen because they could swim quite well because of how they grew up, but if one of them started drowning and got in any trouble, an adult would have known that in about one second, but they were hundreds of yards away and they were doing things on their own, of their own imagination, just fooling around. And uh, I think that's very, very rare. Now people want to bring kids to the place that has the event with the group. Uh, I, I would find that totally stifling. I mean, how can you be creative if you're doing exactly what everybody's telling you to do? So I, I think de- literally destructuring, I, I think, is my answer to your question. I think creativity and productivity are almost inversely related. And I think to be creative, you kind of have to be bored and try to fill your boredom with something interesting. And that's where the creative part comes from. Yeah, well, you certainly need um, you certainly need room in your schedule. Um, I, I guess, you know, you could put it that you have to be bored. I mean, I was I was very bored where I lived in the suburbs and that got me on my bicycle going places where I was the opposite of bored. So, yeah, I yeah, can the, agree with that. The devices are the opposite of boredom. That's what they're optimized for. Yeah. So, I got you on. I wanted to talk about oceans, the future of oceans and the future of wildlife. So, let, let's start on the ocean side of things. Your, your research, what did you find and where are we headed and why is it important? Yeah, well, I was um, I was studying the seabirds called terns, and I was studying what they do in nature. I was not studying a conservation issue. I just wanted to know how they find fish in the ocean, how detectable fish are to them, what makes fish in deep water available to a bird that can only dive a foot below the surface. That's what I was interested in. I just was interested in the natural world. But while I was on the ocean for those years and having a, a you know long personal history of going fishing, I would also do some fishing. And I noticed that the fishing seemed to just be getting worse and worse every year. And uh, it wasn't one kind of fish. It was pretty much everything. The farther out I went, it seemed like the first year I went and did something, the first year I looked for tuna, I saw the most tuna. The first year I looked for marlin, I saw the most marlin. The first couple of years we went shark fishing, we saw the most sharks. And everything seemed to always get less and less abundant. And I, uh, in those years, no conservationists were working on fish as a conservation issue. There wasn't an internet where you could easily look anything up. I had to write to government agencies for uh, these like uh, unpublished agency reports and get copies of them. And uh, everything took a long time. It was it was kind of laborious and a big drag. What, what year was this? That was in the later half of the 80s. And, um, I, I, you know, and the internet didn't become a functional searchable thing until about the year 2000, really. So I did my entire first book, there was no internet to do any research with. So I had boxes and boxes of reports, I would go to the university library, and I would look at all the relevant journals, and I would photocopy articles, hour after hour of photocopying, I'd bring them all home, and I would work with them. So everything took forever. And um, I started to realize that these declines I was seeing were actually a worldwide phenomenon, which were not not generally reported, and they hadn't really been put together. So uh, that's what my first book became. It was a you know it was a signal from the global oceans of widespread depletion due to fishing and due to coastal habitat loss. That's, what, what that's where we per- were. That's where we were headed. Hmm? What type of percentage loss were we seeing on a yearly basis? Some type of is there a way to quantify uh, it somehow so people can understand? Oh, I, I would say 
That's a really, really hard question to answer, but I would say on a yearly basis, maybe 5% or something like that. You know, you would have to, you'd have to be there for five years or so in the same place, at least to get a sense that this isn't just something that goes up and down. It's not like we had a bad year last year and it's a better year this year. It's like every year is getting more degraded, but you could, you know, you needed a few years to see that. So, so that got me to doing a, a bunch of years of fisheries policy reform. We overhauled, we, we did a, a, you know, an, a non-governmental activist type of campaign. And then we got congressional sponsors for uh, our ideas and drafted the legislation. And after four years of, of all of this, I won't bore everybody with all the steps that are involved, but we, we got an overhaul of the U.S. law that regulates fishing. As a result of that, there are actually more fish in U.S. waters in a lot of places than there were 25 or 30 years ago. I was also involved in the later stages of the international drift net ban work because I I got someone who discovered that the drift nets from the Asian countries that were in the Pacific had come into the Atlantic Ocean and he contacted me. So I got very involved at that at that stage and we had a big win on that. So we've had some very big wins along with some very substantial losses and um and the new problems started to overtake the sort of the quaintness of if you catch too many fish stop catching too many fish because now we have the warming of the oceans, the melting of the ice dependent systems. Uh, changes in fish distribution based on temperature. And on top of that, we have the acidification of the oceans because the same carbon dioxide that is warming the atmosphere or causing the atmosphere to warm dissolves in seawater and and it, it deprives, in that chemical process, it deprives animals that need to make calcium carbonate shells and skeletons like corals and clams and lots of plankton. So these are problems you can't just fix by changing the legislation on how many fish you can catch. These are these are problems that the entire ocean system is being destabilized. So before we before we jump into the climate change effects, let's say let's try to put this in perspective for people because I think a lot of people when they think about overfishing or 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 factory farming or any other type of really resource depletion, they think about it in terms of well if McDonald's doesn't have food, I go to Burger King. What what kind of time horizon would we have been looking at with uh, with the overfishing and then the general speaking just yeah. destruction of fish population? Did you okay. have any idea on that? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, the only the only fix that we have is within U.S. waters because we worked on the federal legislation. Around the rest of the world, there is a a spotty patchwork of agreements, most of which don't work very well because people don't, people cheat and they're weak to begin with and there's no good monitoring and enforcement. So we have a uh, global analysis that has told us that of of the big fish in the ocean, like the tunas and the sharks and the marlin and the swordfish, those populations are down about 90%. And that happened since about 1950, when these fishing methods began to go out around the world. The There are other things that happened in centuries before that, but they're regional. The, the largest volume fish landings in the world were for about I don't know, three or 400 years were in the New England and Southern Canada region and um, George's Bank and the Grand Banks were those places. Those were being, those were being depleted slowly for centuries. But once pretty large boats with internal combustion engines started to work, which is like the 1920s or 30s, the depletion became more rapid. And then when the Soviet Union and, um, the Soviet bloc started sending boats around the world, the depletion accelerated into uh, a crash in those areas that had for 500 years been the most productive in the in the world, the, the New England and, and uh, Grand Banks fisheries. And this is a bit like a flywheel. It's something where as it gets going one way or the other, it continues to accelerate. No, people have accelerated it. It's not that it's a self-accelerating system. It's that it's that, uh, you know, just as technology got bigger and more powerful and they could drag bigger nets and s- set more gear and there were more and more people 
people doing it, um, that that caused the acceleration of it. It was just more and more. That's all. I mean, it's kind of like if we have 10 people in a city and suddenly we have five, your odds of finding a mate suddenly go drastically down as well, though. Well, is that I, I'm just trying to think about better question. How do we how do we think that's, about this going that's forward? true? That's true for some animals. And it's probably true for some fish that their gigantic spawning aggregations do not trigger the right behavior or the right hormone levels unless there is a critical mass gathered. For instance, the passenger pigeon, which was the most abundant bird in the world and lived in North America and had a population of billions, went within a century, went completely extinct. But but a, a, an enormous crash happened when they seemed to have hit around 5 million individuals. We would think of 5 million as a huge animal population right now today. But they, in their billions, they needed millions and millions of birds to gather before their hormone levels would kick in that they would actually start breeding. So that may happen with fish, but whether that has happened is not really known. And what are the implications of losing fish and the the future? I've heard by 2050, we'll have more plastic than fish in the ocean. Yes. Well, there's another analysis that says that at the rate we're fishing by 2050, we'll have no commercially valuable fish left. So 20, 2050 is going to be a bad year in the ocean, according to these two analyses. And I uh, I don't really have any reason to, to doubt them. Because, I mean, those are the trends anyway. If we don't do anything now and the trends remain the same, that's where the lines cross zero. Or, well, or in, in the case of the plastic, the, you know, the, the line of the tonnage of plastic and the tonnage of fish cross each other. How do you think about clean meats and lab, laboratory-grown meat alternatives? Well, I thought of that when I was in college, and I, I'm still kicking myself that I never went and did anything with it or wrote about it because it was my idea, damn it. But I I mean, first of all, it's very creepy, and I probably will never want to, to eat any of that stuff, but it would be vastly, vastly better for the planet than farming and killing um, tri literally trillions of animals every year. So, you know, if you have to have meat, if you really have to have it that badly, it would be better to get it out of a can, not a plastic jar, but a can, I guess. I don't buy meat, so I I won't miss it too much at all. But um, I, it would be a lot better than, you know, the, the awfulness of animal farming, which is awful for the animals and it's awful for the habitats. It's awful for the atmosphere. It's 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 all at the scale we're doing it. It's it's a horrendous thing, actually. It's pretty terrible. We go into more detail, guys. If you go to disruptors.fm and look at episode two with Mike Selden, he runs he runs one of the leading uh, clean meat companies, Finless Foods. They're trying to lab grow bluefin tuna. Tuna apparently is especially, especially endangered at this point. Tuna are very depleted. Bluefin tuna are the most depleted of all the tuna. But, you know, that is a most people, they they hear a thing like bluefin tuna and all they think is that it's some kind of food. But I know them as wild animals and they are absolutely extraordinary, extraordinary creatures. For one thing, they get well over a thousand pounds. I've been swimming with wild thousand pound tuna uh, off Prince Edward Island in Canada. And um, they can go 50 miles an hour. They, you, can, you can be in the water handing them herring and they will never touch you because they have such incredible control of themselves. They are warm-blooded fish and they cross the ocean from one side to another during their migrations and they live for decades. So something in a can, no matter what they call it, and no matter how much better it is for the rest of the world, will, will never be bluefin tuna to me. I think that's a good thing though. I personally am very excited about the potential of clean meat to at, at least not make up for, but begin to mitigate some of what humanity is I, I agree. I agree. I agree. So the upside of that is a lot better. I mean, I don't really see a downside because it's not like the people who are now experiencing bluefin tuna won't because people who just go and eat bluefin tuna don't experience it. They just eat it. I've experienced them and it has made me not want to eat them. Let's talk about the experiencing of animals. I know you've talked about animal intelligence, consciousness, and quite a bit along those lines. So I want to I want to get into that and take that as you will. All right. Well, um, where do you want me to start on that? Where do you find people resonate the most? What's the big question uh, people have? 
I, I, you know, it seems like people resonate the most with the idea that a lot of other animals are nicer more of the time and more peaceful each other than we are. So what, what resonates the most, it seems to me, is the idea that there are animals out there who are better than we are. And I, I think whether or not that's true, which I would say it's definitely true for some things, they, as far as that their lives are nicer in a lot of ways and they are more peaceful in a lot of ways. Like you take elephants, for instance. They're herbivores. They almost never fight. They live with, they, they live with family members that they, that they love and are bonded to for decades, for their whole lives. They are obviously very sensitive and they grieve and they know who's who. Their, their lives seem in a lot of ways nicer. They don't, have, they don't have a lot of the bad stuff that we do, other than nowadays they're all getting killed by people. But I mean, you know, their normal lives as they evolve to be. So people, some people seem to need to know that and they are moved very, very deeply by it. I think in a way it, it kind of hooks up to the idea or the need that a lot of people have to feel like there is something bigger and better out there. And a lot of people put that on a belief in God. And some people seem to put it in a sense into a belief in animals, that animals can show us a better way to live. Because after all, we are animals and, and they're here and we can see them. They're a lot more tangible than uh, an idea of a god. So I think in some ways it triggers the same need for people to think that there's something to show them how life could be better and we could all be better. But there are realities to that thought. Uh, as I said, I think there are in, in many ways being an elephant is a better existence. In many ways, being a wolf means having a, a tighter family experience where everybody likes and depends on each other in your family. So I think, I mean, you could go on and on and compare lots of species, lots of birds and things like that, that have interesting kinds of lives. Some of them seem to have not a lot of trouble finding plenty of food. They live in beautiful places. They have their ups and downs. They have their struggles too. But um, I think, I do think that what resonates, I mean, I think that's why people who are really into dogs, for instance, are, are really, really, they really love dogs. I'm looking right at one of my dogs, the one I love the most, I have to say. They, they don't understand English, so the other two won't, won't know what I just said. But this one is looking straight in my eyes as she uniquely always does. And, you know, she doesn't have a life that involves her killing anything or, or fighting for her existence or anything, but she shows that she is loyal. She's friendly. She's ferocious about guarding our place. She never wants to stay mad. She always wants to make up and reconcile. She always wants us to be on good terms. She always wants to get over anything bad that's happened. And it's in a way, this is an ideal kind of creature that, you know, has something to teach us about how we might live. And I, and I do think, uh, I think there's research that shows that animals and caring for animals has a gentling effect on people, that, that people who are incredible psychopaths often have a history of exceptional cruelty to animals. We know that having animals around is, has a very calming effect on people with post-traumatic stress disorder or people with Alzheimer's disease or, or people who are unsocialized or prisoners and things like that. So there's a lot, lot there with other animals. And, uh, and a lot of it is real. It's not just us broadcasting our fantasies onto them or projecting uh, our own ideals. There's, there's a lot there. You know, right? I think Wouldn't you I say think, so? I, w I would definitely agree. I think I think a lot of I think all of the positive traits for the most part that you described for animals come down uh, and, and the differences between animals and humans come down to one thing specifically. And that's mindfulness and living in the moment. Too many people, they, they worry about things that are not happening. And that, that there's, uh, there's some concepts in, in Buddhism and some other, some other meditation and mindfulness type practices of if you're just able to be in the moment, then you're living. And I think that's what animals do that people love so much. Yeah. Is that they don't have something else. They're just there and present. Yeah, I think um, I think that there's a lot to what you just said. And I, I think that one of the greatest things that I enjoy about our dogs is that they uh, they do really just always love life. And you might say, well, you know, what do they know about life? Do they do they know they're going to die? No, I don't think they know they're going to die. I don't think you have to know you're going to die to love life. I think they just love life. They they enjoy things. They they love running around on the beach. They love playing with each other. They love exploring new things. They they just have these capacities to love being alive. And when you think about that, you know, evolutionarily, you would have to have capacities to love being alive because being alive takes work. 
So if you're not enjoying it, if you're not, if you're not experiencing the pleasure of being alive, it wouldn't work out for you. It wouldn't work out for your lineage. You would probably go extinct. I have but, a, but people, uh, but there are a lot of people who I think, uh, you know, my guess is largely because we live such an incredibly artificialized existence where we have jobs and money to worry about and things going wrong with people in our family who are having problems and, uh, uh, you know, the, all, all the advertising that we get to make us feel insecure about that we don't have enough and that we're not good enough. That's not something that you would ever experience in a natural life. And uh, so I think that people have, have had the joy of living beaten out of them often. I mean, a lot of people, especially if you travel around the world, you see really how unbelievably impoverished so many people are. and what They just don't seem to have anything to look forward to and they're trying to just stay alive. You know, a dog running on a beach is looks pretty good. I think Maslow's hierarchy of needs is actually a diamond and you can go both directions. You have to achieve one level to go to the next. Because typically when you see people that have these high levels of issues in their life, they've kind of created these issues themselves. But I wanted to I wanted to talk on the intelligence side of things, on the mental capacity and unconsciousness. So you yeah. brought you brought up dogs and do they know they'll die? Can you tell me a little bit about Well, I think I mean, first of all, the, the the question there is fraught with the idea that we when we say intelligent, we we want to know how they do on a math test and we want to know if they can make a machine and things like that. Which let me just first say, I'm not very good at math and I cannot make a machine. But what I th I mean the things that blow me away are that a lot of animals know exactly who they are, they know exactly where they are, and with what we think of as far lesser intelligence, because it's not a human kind of intelligence, they can live very effectively in places that would kill us in about one night. So to watch all these creatures interacting with each other, know, knowing who their neighbors are, to the extent even that if they're very territorial and they, they fight to keep their territory, they still know who their neighbor is in the neighboring territory. So birds will recognize their neighbor. They don't fight so much with their neighbor because they've already got the boundaries settled. If a stranger comes, it's a whole different thing. And they are, they're acutely aware of what's going on in their lives. Their lives are very vivid to them. They're not, they're not dumb things blundering around out there. They couldn't possibly be because it's complicated and dangerous. They, they have to know where to find everything they need and how to avoid all the dangers. And they, they are highly capacitated. So let's say that in some movie, there was, a, there was a guy with a mask and a cape who could fly, who could dive underwater, uh, never come up for air, tunnel, tunnel through the ocean for a thousand miles, and then come up exactly where he intended to, to be on the opposite shore and surprise his enemies. Uh, individuals who could hear each other's voices from hundreds of miles away. We, we would call these things superhuman superheroes, animals that were 20 times as strong as the strongest man, right? They, they would be superhuman superheroes, but because they're animals, we don't care. Now, is it isn't that they're animals or we don't want to think of ourselves as animals? It's because we insist on thinking of ourselves as the best at everything. We have one favorite story, which is we're the best and we're the only ones that matter. That shows us our lack of intelligence. It's not that we have to compare other animals to us in intelligence. We are far and away the craftiest things at manipulating stuff. And we can, we can fabricate things unbelievably well. But as far as wisdom and understanding who we are in perspective or, or where we are on what kind of planet and what life is, we don't have a clue. And we refuse to even think about it because we have a story that we're sticking to no matter what. And that story is, this place was made for us. We are the best and we're the only thing that matters. Now, there's nothing true about that, but that's our story. So to suggest that you know, gorillas have a right to existence, or even to a lot of people that birds are interesting is, you know, is literally beyond their intelligence. They don't, they can't understand that. That's a failing of human intelligence. It's a failing of what's the, what's the, there's a term for it when you're able to understand that something else is conscious and processing information. That is 
called theory of mind. Yes. Yeah. Which, did- which a lot of people have. I mean, this is another thing about the way we we rig the game for other animals. This this phrase theory of mind was invented to describe a, an ability that macaque monkeys have. They're able to know that another monkey knows. And you can manipulate this kind of thing with experiments that that show it and prove it. You know, we we'll see if an, if if an animal hides something from another animal, but it doesn't hide it if another animal is not watching it, then it knows that the other animal is watching and can know and can want what they have, right? So that was that was invented. That phrase was invented to describe something that researchers had seen in monkeys. Within two or three years, all the literature was only humans have theory of mind. Well, what happened to the poor monkeys? Why did we rob from? Why are we so threatened that we can rob from the monkeys the idea that they know that another monkey can know what's going on? Why is that such a threat to us? It's a very strange thing. You know, there's a there's a a report that's not published yet. I saw I saw an early copy of it saying that a kind of fish can recognize its reflection in a mirror and and did the mirror mark test where they they put a mark on you know you put a mark like a, you dab some makeup on a child's forehead and um you, you let them look in a mirror, they rub the makeup off because they know that it's them in the mirror, right? That's It's a reflection of them, a representation of them. Well, up until very recently, only humans, apes, a couple of birds, and, and not every elephant has been able to understand reflection well, oh, and dolphins, understand reflection well enough to be marked and then try to rub the mark off itself. So there's a paper coming out saying that a fish did this in a series of laboratory experiments. Not only that, but if they take adjacent fish that that fish have seen and become familiar with, and they take photographs of fish that they are familiar with, they won't attack the picture of fish they're familiar with. But if you distort the photograph a little bit, so it looks like it might be a stranger, they'll attack the stranger. Well, I think that's very interesting. And I would say, I never suspected that a fish could pass a mirror mark test. But the scientists could not get this paper published anywhere because other scientists are saying, no, this is impossible. A fish can't possibly do this. Why Why are they so threatened? If he said a gibbon did it, we'd say, okay, well, great apes and now lesser apes, gibbons can do it. Okay, great. We can understand that. But I mean, I, I wouldn't expect a fish could do it, but the fish did it. So is that a threat to me? No, I don't understand why people are so incredibly resistant to learning about the mental capacities of the other creatures that have been on this earth for tens of millions of years. Why do we have a problem with them? I don't have a problem with them. There's the true yet unfortunate saying that often holds progress happens when the leaders die. <laughs> yes. One death at a yeah. time. Right. It's not one death at a time. Science, politics. Uh, right. it, it's in so many different areas. Yes. So this is... But scientists really are supposed to be better than this. I mean, you're you're just supposed to go with the evidence. It, it, if, if you get your paper peer-reviewed, the peer reviewers are supposed to say, oh, well, they did the procedure properly. Oh, yes, they had enough samples. Oh, yes, this is an interesting enough result to publish. So it should be published. They're not supposed to say we don't like it. That's for Facebook. That's not science. That's the interesting thing is the more intelligent you are, the less likely you are to typically question yourself and the more likely you are to fool yourself into thinking that you understand when you truly don't. Well, that's true too. Seen some interesting tests on that. Yeah. So this is this is slightly outside of what I, what I'd been thinking about, but I think it's interesting. How do you think about the the intersection of neuroscience, the the work that you do with animals, mm-hmm. and then the possibility going forward both for understanding potentially AI or any extraterrestrial type creatures that we may encounter in terms of different mind structures and ways of being? Yeah. Different mind structures and ways of being. Octopus is very interesting in that regard because the last common answer, like like all vertebrates, mammals, birds, fish, reptiles, amphibians, we've all evolved basically from fish. We're all, we all have the same nervous system that's all been modified. But octopuses don't have the same nervous system. They have the same DNA. They have the same basic life structure. They have the same neurochemistry. But the last common ancestor we had was a worm-like creature that did not have what we think of as 
a, a nervous system or a central nervous system anyway. And octopuses don't really have a central nervous system. They have eight brains. There's a lot about them that's rigged very, very differently. And yet we can recognize the intelligence in one another. They, they recognize different humans. Sometimes they like certain people and they dislike certain other people. They're very crafty about manipulating jar tops and they escape their tanks. They, you know, they know that they're trying to get away. And when we, when we see an octopus acting with its intelligence, we recognize its intelligence. And I think that that's the closest thing on earth to meeting an intelligent alien. I, I think intelligence can recognize intelligence pretty well. You could probably be fooled in that regard, but if it's genuine, I, I think you would recognize it for what it is. And um, only if it's less than you, if it's greater than you, you may not be able to comprehend what you're seeing. Oh, I don't know. It depends how much greater. I know some people who are a lot smarter than I am and I and I recognize them for what they are, too. So maybe you're right. I think it would depend on how how different all of it is and how different it operates. But if it's let's just say that it's it's possible that in the universe there are constraints with how life can be because the chemistry and the elements are the same throughout the universe. The source of energy is the light that comes from stars. So let's just say that there might be constraints to what life can be and that it has to be material and it has to be chemical and it has to have a signaling system. It may be that we could recognize any one of those things if we came upon it. I don't know, but I think that's a plausible possibility. How would you suggest we best make humanity understand the differences between inherently what we are and what the rest of the world around us is? For instance, I know, I know the statistics are slightly flawed, chimpanzees being 1% different than humans. You can repeat and copy paste some codes of DNA and the, sure, right. the, the percentages are actually much larger. But what if we were to find species that much greater, so to speak, than us in intelligence? Is there a way we could somehow get that to change the way people think about other animals here and now? Well, I, I, I don't think it all has to do with intelligence. And I think that this is the basis of what our problem is is that we play a game as as the major manufacturers of the world. We, we play a game that they have to answer our questions. And we, we just don't have the perspective that would give us the humility to say, oh, we recognize that we are all kin, that life is one, and that the only kind of ethical approach to the living world is to make sure we can all continue this living journey. That's the realization that tribal people intuitively had because they could easily see how so many animals had capacities that were lesser and greater than humans had. That's why people would try to transform themselves into jaguars or why they would worship killer whales at, or not worship them in the sense that we worship a god, but that they would... They would want to acquire the enormously superhuman ocean hunting power of these awesome creatures. But basically, firearms tilted the balance of killing power so that we lost our respect. We just lost our respect for the living world that for hundreds of thousands of years, humans had right into modern times. And then it just changes. It just changes things so much. What outside of your work? What technology are you most excited about, and why? Outside of my work, what technology am I most excited about? Or change, or well, innovation, or direction? I, I mean, let me just say, I, I love my laptop, and I am awed by my smartphone. But those things don't excite me for the following reason, and and that is that I, I live just fine without them. I know the difference. I know what it was like, and it was fine. So I find ethics exciting. Uh, to answer your question directly, what I think I find most exciting about technology is that we, we, we need to get off oil and fossil fuels. Wind is one of the most promising things. Solar is the other most promising thing. We, we have a lot of wind energy that's about to go in and is going in in our part of the country with these fan blades that kill lots of birds. But there are new uh, new kinds of configurations where there's a thing that rotates around a cylinder. And there was a new one that I just saw was unveiled at some show very recently, uh, a whole different kind of a thing where you don't have this chopping blade going around. You, you have something that is basically standing there. And although there's something spinning, it's not going to kill anything. 
So if we could move to all that and we would have no fossil fuel and we would not kill millions of animals in the process of that change, that strikes me as very exciting. I, I think it's very disappointing that there are a lot of places now where environmentalists who want clean energy are, are fighting wind turbines because they're killing lots of birds and bats and they're not the best design that we have. So better designs for wind power, I guess, is, is the thing that I would be most excited about. Let's play devil's advocate. Let's ask a hard ethical question. What if the only way to accomplish this was to have the, the ineffective wind turbines? What if it did lead to lots of deaths in the short term for wildlife and animals, but was able to pull humanity and the world back from the brink, so to speak, of climate change? Would that well, be worth it? That's, that's not such a hard question because climate change is going to erase a lot of life on Earth as we have it now. So there, there are a lot of things that will not make it through a rapid warming and a rapid ocean acidification. So the lesser of those evils would be stabilize the life support systems, even if your machines are killing millions of animals. Okay. What are the implications of the ocean acidification other than the destruction of coral? Well, it's the destruction of coral and a lot of the plankton that is the basis of the entire food chain. So you're going to have the ocean will be producing less food for animals of all kinds. And that means that populations of fish and birds and turtles and everything will decline enormously in proportion to the decline of the, the basic animal foods of the ocean, the animal plankton and the, and the, and some of the plankton is not even what we would call animals. So that's one implication. The other implication is that everything has to balance the pH level of its blood. And if the ocean gets more and more acidic, then your body, if you're a ocean living animal, your body will have to spend energy re constantly rebalancing or trying to buffer the pH of your blood. So that will draw from what you already are using to just stay alive. And a lot of animals exist on pretty thin margins. So that will probably, uh, you know, that will probably result in a, a, a lowering of the ability of the ocean to support animals in abundance. So it's not just coral by, by any means. It's the coral are, are the biggest, most visible structures. And there are a lot of reefs now that are really stressed or some have died because of the warming that has happened and also because of the overfishing that has happened. Because without the, uh, without the grazing fish that eat the algae off the coral, the coral get overgrown by algae and the coral die. So there's a lot of that happening already. There, there's a lot of weakened coral that is not growing as fast because of the acidification. But it's the whole, it's the whole first rung of the food web that is the main problem with ocean acidification. So realistically, there could be a ripple or a shockwave that more or less killed nearly everything in the ocean very quickly. Uh, yes, to, to put it simplistically, yes. Okay. So that, that is a very serious problem. What, um, is there, is there something else that you'd want to leave people with a quote, a call to action, anything at this point? Well, I mean, I, I know this is not exactly right. your congressman, but we have, um, you know, we have these things called the laws of physics and they're called the laws because everywhere in the universe that we can observe them, they're the same. The speed of light is the same. Gravitational forces are the same. We have certain ways that subatomic particles interact. They're the same throughout the universe. Those are called the laws of physics or the laws of nature. Anything that doesn't obey those laws is called a miracle. If you look across the universe, there's no other life that we see. So at the very least, life is a very rare thing. It's possible, it's very unlikely that we're the only ones. So far, that's a possibility. But at the very least, life is a very rare thing. And one of the laws of physics is that the universe tends toward disorder. Energy dissipates, matter gets less organized, the universe gets farther and farther apart. That's one of the basic laws of the universe. Well, life does exactly the opposite. It's self-organizing, uh, self-perpetuating, it's self-complicating. It, life is a miracle. This planet is a miracle. And that's how we should live in it. 
I think that's a super, super important takeaway for people. You, we only get one shot on this, this, uh, this game of life. And who knows, maybe all of us combined are the only shot that the universe has. It's, uh, it kind of helps you put things in perspective. I think nature can do that as well. When you realize that you are just some tiny little person on a tiny little rock on a tiny little spinning area of a tiny little, tiny little, tiny little. It's, yes, uh, but you it's know, humbling. The, the thing about that kind of humbling is that that's, that's the basic feeling of the religious experience. And when you realize that you're this little small thing, it's it, the implication is not that you're little and small. It's that you're part of something enormous. And, and that's what life does. That's what life tells us. That's what that's what being outside in nature and and paying some attention to the extent that our little senses can do that. That's that's the feeling that we get is being part of something vast in space and vast in time. Not just oh I'm little, I'm insignificant, but I'm I'm a part of something vast. The bigger picture. We all contribute to it. Carl, I think you're doing a great job. I know you've got a lot going on. It sounds like some awesome dogs as well. <laughs> yeah. What type of dogs do you have? We have a brown one and a black one. They are they are both mutts from the pound. One is a retriever mix, one is a border collie, collie-ish kind of a mix. And then we have this new one that you hear barking that is actually a pedigree dog that we just took from some elderly friends of ours who had her in a New York City apartment and it was not the right dog for them at the right time in the right place for them. So we we just have had this dog for less than a week and we're all, we're all getting adjusted to one another. That's how it works. It's always the growing pains. But yeah, she's a, got, little, got uh, a she's a she's a mini Australian shepherd. That's what she is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Sorry about the occasional barking guys, but this episode is about nature and animals. So you're going to have to deal with it because it's perfectly fitting. Carl, this was this was a lot of fun. It was definitely informative for me. I think it was for a lot of people as well. Okay, Where's the best place great. for people to learn more about you? What's oh, you yeah. Um, well, carlsafina.org and thesafinacenter.org. The Safina Center is my not-for-profit group. So Awesome. Yeah. Keep keep up keep up the incredible work. And thank you. Yeah, if you guys are interested, reach out. I'm sure they could always use help and support with trying to make the world better, especially for, well, all of us, because that's kind of how it works. We're playing a game and we're playing it all together. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's a good note to end on, and I really appreciate being here with you this hour. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. Take care. If you want more of the disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.